As Phil said, I'll be reading the scripture, which is found in Revelations chapter 22, verses 6 through 21. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, had sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord be with all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Phil and Kristen. Well, last week, Pastor David, as he was introducing his sermon, he talked about being left home alone, which of course at this time of year, (laughs) the mentioning of being left home alone makes me think at least, and probably many of you, the Christmas classic, Home Alone. And Kevin's mother sits in first class with this terrible feeling, doesn't she? Um, And it's not the garage door that they've left open. David talked about being left home on on purpose, nothing he had done, (laughs) but does his parents go out for errands or they go out for dinner, but Kevin's parents forgot Kevin on accident, and I I just love that dialogue on the plane. Um, We brought the movie up just the other night, and just, it's amazing how (laughs) we could just rattle off line after line, but but you've got Uncle Frank mumbling there, it's horrible, just horrible, (laughs) and then Kevin's mother asked rhetorically, how could we do this? We forgot him. And dad, trying to console her, perhaps shift blame a little, says, we didn't forget her. We just, you know, we just miscounted. Right? Just miscounted. <laughs> um, to which she then says, what kind of mother am I? 
And Uncle Frank responds, his last line here, if it makes you feel any better, I forgot my, does anybody know? My reading glasses. <laughs> and they all look at Uncle Frank, oh, Uncle Frank. It's a classic scene, and, and I bring it up just for a minute to reflect on this idea of forgetting what it means to wonder if you've been forgotten. Perhaps some of you have worked for companies where they went through this, this rebranding of mission and vision and values, and, and it was all so important for five weeks. And then five months later, everyone, including the leaders, have forgotten what was so important about everything. We're coming off an intense political cycle where local, state, and national Candidates made all sorts of promises. Some of those promises you hope will be forgotten. (laughs) Others you hope are not forgotten. But that some promises will be forgotten is inevitable. If we were believers in God alive around 1 BC, so, so just before the birth of our Lord, I suspect we could have been tempted to feel the way many do in A.D. 2020. Forgotten. Or maybe even forsaken by God. There's a line in O Holy Night, one of my favorite Christmas hymns, that says, Long lay the world in sin and air pining. The phrase in sin and air and pining described the state of the world just before the advent of the Messiah, just before the thrill of hope, the birth of Christ. But that description of the world of the New Testament, just before the first advent, sounds a lot like how I might describe our world before the second advent, the second coming of Jesus. Consider with me a moment just Each of these words, first sin. In the first century, the political leaders over God's people were debauched. For example, we read just even in the Christmas story about one leader killing babies when he heard there might be a new king somewhere. That's not him. Today, we still kill a lot of babies. Consider Matthew 14, where we read of another leader related to that previous one named Herod Antipas, who grants political wishes to a young woman after she does apparently something of a striptease for him at a dinner party. Sin abounded in their world, but so it does in ours. Depending on which way you drive to church, you have to pass our strip clubs. Not not in some faraway land, but around the corner. Long lay the world in sin, then and now. And then there's error. You don't have to be super familiar with the Bible to know the name the Pharisees, but but the Pharisees were just one of really four religious groups at the time within Judaism. There were the Sadducees who tended to be more liberal and, and they were more interested in colluding with the Romans perhaps. There were the Essenes who, this pious group, they would retreat from their ordinary society to maintain their supposed purity. There were the zealots who were primarily interested in regaining political power. Then, of course, there were the Pharisees who were more like, we might say, our evangelical pastors. They tend to take a more conservative approach to the Bible. 
But Jesus took even the best group, the Pharisees. I mean, you, you, we think about that Jesus just keep hammering the Pharisees. But really what he's doing, he's picking on the best of the groups. And even among them, there was error upon error upon error. And today, I just, I just reflect on the fragmented nature of the denominations in Christianity. How many errors exist among us? Long lay the world in error. Then and now. And then there's that word pining. We don't speak of pining very much. It's an old world, but it means reaching or yearning. To pine is to long for something yet unrealized. It's like reaching for this carrot that's hanging out in front of you and you're just, you're just trying to reach it and all you can seem to do is kind of touch it with your fingertips but never grasp it. That's, that's pining. We just spent the fall preaching through a 10-week series on idols. And behind each of the idols, whether in their day or in our day, whether the idol of work or money or sex or approval or power or whatever, is this pining for something we know we long for but can't quite ever reach. Perhaps to describe pining, we could use the language of thirst, as we'll see our passage in Revelation does. Or we could use the language of desire, as this passage does, as well as C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis has this quote, he has many quotes that just float around, but one in particular about desire. It says that if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing of this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. We all have that desire, that thirst, that pining. Before the birth of Christ, there were 400 years of silence. This intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew. And there have been 2,000 years since. Long lay the world pining then and now. Kevin's mother asked the question, what kind of mother am I that I would forget? We're closing our Advent sermon series by looking at the book of Revelation, specifically the last verses in the last chapter, in the last book of the Bible. And what we see when we look at that passage is that Jesus anticipated a time when his church would be wondering if they were forgotten or forsaken. In Revelation, we see Jesus anticipated a time when it seems the world would feel as though they had too long lain in sin and error pining. Jesus anticipated a time, if we could just say it starkly, when believers might be asking, what kind of God would forget us for so long? But the answer to that question, the answer to the question of whether God's people have been or will ever be forgotten or forsaken, The book of Revelation answers with a resounding no. In verse 7 we read, And behold, I am coming soon. In verse 12 we read, Behold, I am coming soon. I am the Alpha and Omega, this first and last letter of the Greek alphabet, the A and the Z, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, Jesus says. The book of Revelation, specifically the last chapter, thunders the answer to the question of whether God's people will ever be forgotten with a resounding no. And that's one of the reasons I love the book of Revelation. 
promises only whispered. Revelation shouts from the mountains. In Revelation, shadows become substance. And the song on the hearts of God's people become reality. In literature, there's this idea that's become known as Chekhov's gun. It comes from this Russian writer named Anton Chekhov in the late 1800s. And the idea is that in a story, if you include certain details at the beginning of the story, then those details set up and in fact promise something later in the story. And good stories don't forget what they promise. That's Chekhov's gun. Here he is in his own words. He says, if you say in the first chapter of a story that there's a rifle hanging on the wall, in the second or third chapter, it absolutely must go off. If it's not going to be fired, it shouldn't be hanging there. Or again, in another place, he wrote, one must never place a loaded rifle on the stage, meaning the stage of a play, if it's not going to go off. It's wrong to make promises you don't mean to keep. Or again, one more, if in the first act of a play you have hung a pistol on the wall, then in the following one it should be fired. Otherwise, don't put it there. Hence the name Chekhov's gun. Now, I thought about consulting my extensive collection of Russian literature to see if I could find those quotes, but then I remembered I don't have an extensive collection of Russian literature, so I just looked at Wikipedia. So don't, don't do as I do here if you're writing final exams still. Uh, hopefully you're done with them by now. But my point in mentioning these aspects of promise and fulfillment in a story in good literature, are not to take some guy's view and then press them back onto the Bible. That's not what I want to do. But I will say that Chekhov observes something that does happen in the Bible, the greatest story ever told. There are details throughout the story of God, sometimes details only whispered, that the book of Revelation shouts. Look with me at verse 14. If you have a Bible there, you can take one off the pew. It's, we're, like if you hit the tables and measurements at the end of the Bible, like just go back one page. We're at the very end. Revelation twenty two fourteen, we read, Blessed are those who wash their robes. Speaking of forgiveness, it's been given them. So that they may have the right to the tree of life. Just put your finger there on the tree of life. That they may enter by the city Gates or enter the city by the gates. You say, what is this? The tree of life? Outside of a few references in the book of Proverbs where a tree of life is used as a metaphor, the literal tree of life has not been mentioned in the Bible since the opening chapters in the book of Genesis. Genesis, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, on through the rest of the historical books of Judges and Kings, or or Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, through the wisdom literature, and then the prophets of of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the minor prophets as we call them, from Daniel to Haggai and Habakkuk, and on in through the last book in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Malachi, and then into the New Testament and the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John through the, uh, the book of Acts, and then the letters of Hebrews and 
The letters of James and Peter's letters and John's letters. And finally here in the last book of the Bible, we read of the tree of life again. In Genesis, when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, they're kicked out when they sin. God guards that garden with an angel with this flaming sword, this heavenly lightsaber of sorts. He's put there to guard the tree of life. But here in Revelation, what God is saying to us, he's saying, you know that thing I did back there? I haven't forgotten. And you are not forgotten. Or forsaken, and one day you will eat and live forever in paradise. And th- this is not the only detail that resurfaces. Look again, verse 16. Statement Jesus makes for the churches, for us. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root of and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Put your finger on that word root. And David. The phrase about the root of David comes, uh, this is referring to King David in the Old Testament. Jesus sees himself as the heir of David's throne. The kingdom long gone at this point, so it seemed. The prophet Isaiah wrote about this years before Jesus. God speaking through Isaiah says, chapter 11, verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his shoot shall bear fruit. Jesse was the father of David. In other words, though the kingdom of Judah looked like a dead stump in the ground, like a tree that's just been chopped to a little nub and then ground into the ground. Out of it's going to come forth a shoot. A new king, life from the dead, who is Jesus, Isaiah says. And the book of Revelation picks that obscure, perhaps, verse to us up from the Old Testament. And Jesus reminds us in the book of Revelation, the one who was coming and did come will come again. The first advent promises the second. Consider the word thirst in verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So, in other words, you don't have the moral capital to purchase life from God, but come anyway. And that phrase, that the one who desires take the water of life without price, also occurs almost word for word in Isaiah again. This time from chapter 55. It's a phrase that Jesus picks up in the Gospels. Several times, actually. Especially in the book of John. Chapter 4, chapter 6. In chapter 7, Jesus goes up to this festival. Uh, it's a Jewish festival that... Jerusalem is bustling with people. He goes into the temple grounds and he stands up among in this crowd. And the Bible says he spoke in a loud voice. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Your thirst will be satisfied in a way that gives life. 
Jesus says in the gospel. And in Revelation, Jesus makes that offer again. There are other phrases I'd love to linger over in this passage, but we don't have time. But, but just that little bit, I hope, this appetizer of, of reflecting on the tree of life, on the king from the root of David, on the promise of living water, are enough to show you, I hope, why I love the book of Revelation. Promises only whispered in the Bible are shouted from the mountains. In Revelation, shadows become substance, and songs on the hearts of God's people become reality. A gun of blessing hung in the Garden of Eden goes off in the heavenly city of the New Jerusalem. Just to give you one more example, lest that not be enough, in Genesis 3, 8, we read of God walking in the garden, it says, in the cool of the day. In the book of Revelation, we read of God with his people again. The meaning of the word, as Phil pointed out, Emmanuel. Except now this small garden of Eden has become a bright and beautiful city full of worshipers. So, what kind of people? What kind of people ought we to be in light of the hope of the second advent? This passage has much to say about that as well. So we should say a few things. What kind of people ought we to be? We ought to be people of the book. Repeated throughout this passage and really especially the last two chapters of the book of Revelation is this idea of keeping, it says. Keeping the words of this book. Verse 6, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. Continuing in verse 7, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So it's not only faithful and true, but you're blessed if you keep them. Contra that in verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to them the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in this book. So clearly, we're to be a people of the book. A people, I think we can say more broadly, of the Bible. People who read God's word, who treasure it up in our hearts, and who seek to live in light of what it says. And so I ask the question, do you know your Bible this year better than you did the last year? And if not... What will you do next year that you didn't do this year? I was telling some guys just the other day that in this next year I hope to switch up what translation of the Bible I've been reading from. I've been reading from the same translation, really the one we preach out of for the last dozen years. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. I just, I just feel this longer like, okay, fresh language. I, I just... Somehow for the Lord to show up through his word in my life in fresh ways. In those early moments before the chaos of the day begins. And so that's, that's what I'm going to do. I just want to ask the question, what are you, you going to do? In light of the second advent, we must also be holy people. We must not be those who play with sin. Look with me again at verse 11. It's... A strange verse of sorts, in a way. At least misunderstood, it would be very strange. So verse 11 
says this, let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Strange, right? Like we don't expect God to tell people, if you want to sin, (laughs) just keep going, just keep going, just keep going. I don't think that's what it means though. Could be one of two things, one of two things. Perhaps this verse means that when Jesus comes again, the time for change will be done. He's here, it's over. Whatever you were doing at that moment is what you were doing, it's done. Perhaps that's what it means. Or verse 11 could mean, um, could, could be something of a direct address to believers. To stay the course, meaning Jesus is saying, he's looking to his believers, he's looking to his church and saying, okay, up until my, last, my second coming, there will be those out there who just continue to sin up until the day I come, but you be righteous, you be holy. Perhaps that's what it means. But in either case, the takeaway is that you don't play with sin. You don't say, I know this is wrong, but I'll fix it tomorrow. Sometimes young people put off becoming holy. Sometimes retired people put off becoming holy. This is my time, we think. I'll live for Christ later. Church, if you are not walking in a vibrant way with the Lord Jesus Christ, there is nothing more urgent in your life. Only those who walk with him now will walk with him then. And in light of the second advent, we must also be an inviting people. Read verse 17 again. I read it before. I'll read it again. It's where I took the title for the sermon. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Here in this verse, the Spirit of God and his church, called the bride, speak in unison. Perhaps shout in unison. Evangelize in unison. They make an invitation. Just as Jesus has said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Now the church and his bride say to thirsty sinners, those pining for more, come to Jesus. I know you don't have the moral capital, the life lived in perfection to earn life from God, but come anyway. He wants you to come. I know inviting to people, people to church is weird now because of covid and large gatherings and so we didn't we didn't even print up christmas flyers normally i just have the spiel where I print these christmas flyers and say hey this is for you but it's not for you give it to somebody else to put on their fridge i didn't even, we didn't even do that this year but i'll be preaching here on christmas eve and we'll be singing and i would just love you know someone comfortable if you're coming yourself i'd love for you to invite them Finally, we are to be a praying people. The second to last verse in the Bible is a prayer that the church makes. Yes, we invite others to come to Jesus. But we also say to Jesus, come Lord Jesus. Maybe that's a prayer you've 
said this year. I mean, you might not be the best prayer, and I don't know who among us is, but you can pray that verse. And you will pray that verse if, if you want it to be true. But you have to want them to come. Lots of people don't. Christians do. When John wrote the book of Revelation, he, he sees, and when he sees the angel speak to him, John wants to fall down and worship the angel. That scene and that vision and those words are so glorious. He just says, I'll, I'll fall down right here and worship at the feet of this angel. But the angel tells him to get up and worship only Jesus. Pay attention only to Jesus. Keep your gaze riveted there. Adore Jesus. In other words, verse 8 is saying, there are many things, both good and bad, angels and idols, that might pull your attention away from Jesus this Advent season. But he is where our attention belongs. Until the day he splits the sky and returns in glory. The late pastor and author Eugene Peterson wrote several books about pastoral ministry and what ought to be most important in local churches. And in one place where he's critiquing this idea of, of the ideal of church growth kind of to a fault, he has this to say. He writes, The biblical fact is that there are no successful churches. There are instead Communities of sinners gathered before God week after week in towns and villages all over the world. In these communities of sinners, one of the sinners is called a pastor and given a designated responsibility in the community. It is the pastor's responsibility to keep the community attentive to God. It is this responsibility, he writes, that is being abandoned in spades. At our church, we are blessed to have not one pastor, but several. And there is nothing more in this difficult year that our pastor elders, those lay elders and those staff pastors, would want for you in this Advent season than to keep your attention riveted on God. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. I don't know exactly what Jesus means by the word soon. Apparently he means something different than I might have meant. But I do know it means that we are not forgotten. Which should indeed lead to a thrill of hope and a weary world rejoicing. And invite the worship team to come back up. And those of us who are thirsty can sing songs longing for the second coming of our King. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be a people. who, even as this passage uses the word come in two ways of come to Jesus and Jesus come to us, that those longings would define us. And in the meantime, you would sustain us. You would be a rock 
under our feet. And I pray, perhaps even in a fresh way, your word would fall upon us. And if we have been those who have doubted and wondered and feel forgotten for this or that reason, I pray this morning that your word and your song and your gathering with your people and the preaching of your word would be like this big bear hug that would remind us of who you are, what you have done, are doing, and will do again. We pray this in Jesus' name.